When it comes to creating environmentally sustainable supply chains, it's more than a question of planet versus profit. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The issue of sustainability tends to have a polarizing effect on business and the public at large. On one hand, we hear calls for environmentally responsible supply chains at any cost. On the other side of the debate, there are those who oppose any green measures as a threat to jobs and corporate profitability. So how do we strike a balance between these competing interests? The answer can be found in a new book entitled Balancing Green, When to Embrace Sustainability in a Business and When Not to. The author is Yossi Sheffi, Alicia Gray II, Professor of Engineering Systems at MIT and Director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. On the show today, he'll talk about how his research has yielded a pragmatic approach to the issue of environmental sustainability in global supply chains. We'll learn about the biggest environmental and reputational risks that companies are facing today, why it's wise to address climate change even if you don't believe in it, and how companies can sustain their sustainability efforts. So here is my conversation with Yossi Sheffi. Professor Yossi Sheffi, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Professor Sheffi, why another book about environmental sustainability now? What did you hope to accomplish with this? The objective of writing the book was to present a realistic balance between what can be done, what should be done in terms of sustainability and the green economy. There are lots of people who are thinking that it's the challenge of our times, there are a minority of people who think that it's just a hoax, but there are actually a lot of people who think that it may be happening, global warming may take place or is taking place, but the initiative that the governments and NGOs suggest are too costly and don't make any sense. So there are two camps who are both right, and I'm trying to bridge the gap. That's why the, my book is called Balancing Green, when to embrace sustainability in a business and when not to. And interestingly, you say you remain, at least for the purposes of the book, agnostic as to whether climate change is real or not. That's not your concern in approaching this book, correct? Yes, because what I'm saying is uh, for those people who think nothing should be done and all this because they don't believe in it, my point is it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. There are three basic business reasons to do it, even if you don't believe in it. One is uh, eco-efficiency. There are many, many initiatives in the green space that reduce cost. The classic is, of course, reducing energy consumption. There's another reason to do it, and this is eco-risk mitigation, because by taking on some green initiative, you forestall attacks by NGO, by the media, and some others, sometimes investors, sometimes customers, sometimes even employees. So the risk mitigation idea. The last reason is eco-hedging in some sense. There is 
a small group of people who will pay more for a sustainable product, sustainable process, making sustainable product, which may increase the price of a product. And you want to hedge against the possibility that this segment of the market will grow. Uh, one indication is that uh, young people are more environmentally conscious than older people. So it may be that as time goes forward, you want to hedge and you want to do something like Clorox did when they developed Greenworks line of products. It's a small, very small comparing to the size of Clorox, but it allowed them to understand the chemistry, understand the suppliers, understand the market, and they're not making money of this, but it's, it can be looked upon as a hedging strategy. What was the basis of your research? Whom and how many did you interview for this book? Interviews, uh, well over a hundred, hundreds actually, companies and people within companies. The book is focused on companies, but let me take back and say that first of all, Sustainability is a supply chain issue. So in companies that I interview, I usually look to interview both the sustainability officer, but also always people along the supply chain, because otherwise it's meaningless if you don't look at the supply chain. A company can reduce its carbon footprint, but it can outsource manufacturing to, to China. So all the carbon footprint is done in China. The whole idea is to look at the supply chain, at the company itself, at the distribution, and even at the return cycle. So it is a supply chain issue, and I interviewed both sustainability people, people in NGO, people in companies who are committed to sustainability, and companies who are, say, we'll do it only if it cut costs. Otherwise, we're not going to touch it. Interesting that you mentioned those two types. I'm wondering if you found that within a given organization, the sustainability person and the supply chain person were in constant communication. Were they on the same page? Were they in opposition to each other? Did they ever speak? I mean, what was the relationship between those two individuals they are, within an organization? They are. In most companies, they do speak to each other, and companies do realize that a lot of it is in the supply chain. But it is very complicated to do, for example, just calculate carbon footprint of a product all along the supply chain. In fact, companies like Tesco tried to do it and failed big time. Why? Several years ago, Tesco partnered with a very famous NGO in this space, and together they decided to put carbon label on every product. They put millions of dollars into it, and they did it relatively exhaustively, looking at the entire supply chain, from trying to look at it from the mine or field to the store. And they were able to do about 125 items per year, which means that it would take them seven centuries to do all the items <laughs> in one Tesco store. That's if nothing changes, of course, in these uh, 700 years. So it became too expensive. You cannot do it. And also there were lots of other people, for example, a third of the people in the store thought that higher carbon footprint is actually better. The whole issue with understanding what the carbon footprint means, the also the fact that it's meaningless. What does it mean the product has 0.85 kilogram of carbon? Is it good? Is it bad? Relative to what? The whole effort was very unsuccessful. So, so much for the idea that a carbon footprint statement would be akin to, say, nutrition information on food. It's easily quantifiable. It's definitely not that easy or like that at all then, huh? Let me explain something, and which will also explain why most people are not willing to pay for a sustainable product. Think about any product that you want, that you search for a product in the store, what to buy. There are some 
uh, attribute is search attribute, you know, the color of the car. You see it before you buy. The second one is so-called experience attribute, the, the uh, taste of the yogurt. You taste it after you buy. You like it or don't like it. The third one is what is called intrinsic credence attribute. It's You cannot test it yourself, but you can take it to a lab to test, for example, emission of a car. The last mm-hmm. one is hidden credence attribute. It's this that cannot be verified by the consumer. For example, was any child labor using the product? Were they polluting the local rivers? Everything that has to do with sustainability is actually a hidden credence attribute, something that happens along the supply chain. That's one of the reasons that many customers are not willing to pay for it. It's very hard to verify that this actually happened. You have to believe. And as we know, the belief in institutions in general is not very high nowadays. So it's hard to believe. Okay, so a majority are not willing to pay for it. But at the same time, they demand that companies be environmentally responsible, especially on social media. And in social media, it doesn't have to be a majority. All it takes is a minority of extremely loud voices on social media to really cause problems for a brand if those people complaining don't decide that the company is being environmentally sustainable. So what do you do in that kind of Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. That's why I said you have to keep some activity in this area. Mm-hmm. You have to have a chief sustainability officer and do the things that you can do, reduce costs in terms of reduce energy and talk about it. Prefer, if you can, sustainable suppliers who can do something without increasing your cost. Change the bulbs, do a skylight to get the actual sunlight in rather than artificial light. You do all these things, honestly, on the margins. As long as customers and and long consumers are not willing to pay for it, it's a problem. People are not going to do drastic things. I like this phrase you use of supply chain in the crosshairs. Uh, You're talking then about all the competing interests that the supply chain officer has to deal with on a daily basis, right? And a big time, if it's in terms, even a company strategy, think about supply chain. Supply chain has to, some sense, adjudicate between the suppliers and buyers. They are the means, first of all, to provide jobs. People work in factories, people work along the supply chain. And they are also the means to provide what people want, clothes, foods, mm-hmm. whatever. It's all delivered through global supply chain. At the same time, supply chain creates environmental impacts. They do have environmental impacts. And that's why in the book, I actually say, you know, people are using slogans like planet versus profit or people versus planet or people versus profit, whatever. This is exaggerated, I would say. Mm -hmm. The real deal is people versus people. It's people who want a clean environment and they are right to demand it versus people who want job and affordable stuff and they are right to demand it. That's why I call the book Balancing Green, because it's not a question of who is right and who is wrong. They're both sides are right. But we are living in an environment that's almost like Congress when people are talking Hmm. across from each other. It is very hard to come to reasonable compromise on what can and should be done in the short run, in the medium run, in the long run. So that's basically the point of the book. There's no right and wrong here. It's what makes Hmm. sense. What can you do for sustainability, for environmental sustainability without killing jobs, without making stuff unaffordable to people who can't afford it. That's the message of the book, that both sides are right. Of course, there's no easy answer. It has to vary oh. from company to company. It has to moment to moment, investment to investment, right? Absolutely Maybe. right. Absolutely right. And that's why the book includes many, many examples of how companies try to adjudicate this. 
how com- different companies do different things. Also, it doesn't make sense for all companies to do the same thing because some companies, the majority of impact is on water, like Coca-Cola or InBev. Some companies are you know, big-time manufacturing. It's on energy use because of mm-hmm. you need to stamp metal and uh, all of these very big energy usage. It makes sense for different companies to work in different areas. It makes sense for them to see what impacts they can mitigate, not only in the environmental impact, but the job impact, the cost impact. All of this needs to be done simultaneously. You talk about having found gaps in the research that you uncovered in the course of, uh, of doing this book over, over the time it took. What are some of those gaps? What did you mean by that? The basic gap is just what I'm talking about, just what I mentioned before. Most of the books are written by people who believe that it's the challenge of our time, that doing some must be done some and must be pretty drastic because some of the points made by some on the right, on the left, if, if you even do everything that the Paris Accord want people to do, it's not going to change one iota and it's going to be very expensive. So the question mm-hmm. is, you do, if you go even more and you really try to get us to uh, a level that's not going to, that according to the model, in 50, 70 years, is not going to endanger coastal cities, then you have to do drastic actions that may not be justified, mainly in terms of the uncertainty in what's happening in the future. So you need to do some things, but in moderation. You need to understand the concerns of everybody in the process of the entire ecosystem of job seekers or people who want to buy stuff or people who are concerned about the environment. Again, it's impossible to generalize, but I'd like to know what some of the lessons that you took away from your research are and what readers can take away from reading this book. Starting with internally, what are the challenges of coordinating sustainability initiatives across an organization? Did you come up with any interesting approaches that companies might follow to meet that challenge? Interestingly, challenges change from company to company. It depends, for example, on how much risk companies are facing. So who is at risk? Companies that uh, depend a lot on their uh, brand are very much at risk. Companies with deep supply chain that reach into the bowels of China are at risk. Consumer-facing companies, by and large, are at risk because the brand is so important. Yet, we find out that in many cases, the pressure to do it is stronger on B2B companies because if you sell to a retailer, for example, it's relatively easy for the retailers to demand sustainability action from you because it means then that the product that they sell are more sustainable without them required to to take any action. They put the financial burden on you to do it. Uh, oh, and, and, they, and, they, and they end up reaping the rewards in terms of customer image, right? Of course, of course, because now they sell products that they can show are more sustainable because you put in the investment. However, then the question is, are they willing to pay for it? Uh, very few are. Now, I, mm-hmm. I also give a lot of examples in the book of, of companies who are actually committed to sustainability. Companies like Patagonia, Seventh Generation, several companies who are committed to sustainability and wouldn't work any other way. Those are usually small companies and privately held companies. So they're not subject to market forces. When I say small, it's not that small. Patagonia will get to a, a billion dollar in sales in a few years. So they are pretty big. But nobody is giant like PNG or Unilever or Walmart or anybody. The other difference there is that environmental sustainability is built into their brand, especially in the case of like seventh generation or the like. That is their identity. 
is involved Absolutely. in sustainability. Absolutely. So they have no choice and, but to pursue it. You know. And Patagon, by the way, Patagonia as well, they sell to people who care about, by and large, who care about this. And by the way, their product costs more. But they sell to a segment of the market who will pay for this. What about externally, though? What challenges did you find in companies were facing in multi-tier supply chains, especially when you get up to tier two, tier three, and the like? Okay. You get all the way back to raw materials. Sure. What are the challenges there? Okay. So companies who want to uh, influence what happens in the deep tiers, of course, have a problem. First of all, to know who are they? Who are the suppliers in the deep tier? Tier one will, all, will not always to tell you who their tier two suppliers are because they consider the competitive advantage. They don't want to tell you. They're afraid you go around them. There are lots of reasons they're not going to tell you. So first of all, find out who they are. Now, let's say you found out who they are. Now you come to them. You come to a company at tier three, tier four. They don't even know who you are. You don't buy from them, so you have very little leverage on them. And they sell to many other companies. You may be a small part of their eventual customer base, but they don't sell to you, so you don't have any influence over them. So this is, I, I describe in detail what happens with when Intel wanted to take out conflict minerals out of its product because they had to go about 12 or 13 tiers until they get to the mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo when there are slave labor and lots of atrocities in terms of mining several minerals. How difficult it was to go all the way. Then there's another difficulty, the difficulty with dealing with commodities. Because when you deal with commodities, you don't buy directly from the manufacturers, from the mine, from the uh, oil suppliers, from because the stuff goes through brokers, they go to smelters, they go, the stuff is mixed. When you buy oil, you don't know where, which oil you buy from. When you buy palm oil, for example, it goes from smallholder farms to brokers to mixers to world markets, and you buy palm oil. You don't know where it's really coming from. So there are mm -hmm. lots of actual challenges in greening their supply chain. Yeah, it's interesting you should mention conflict minerals because now you're introducing an entirely different dimension to the conversation, and that is the dimension of human rights. We talk about forced labor. We talk about slavery. That is something quite different from environmental sustainability. I would think that on that side, you can't make a cost-benefit analysis. You can't say, well, it's too expensive. I'll have a little bit of slavery in my supply chain. You know, <laughs> do you venture into that area? In this book or not? I mention it. The book is about environmental sustainability. I mention it, that's in terms of what I described before, the difficulty in, getting, first of all, understanding if it's there or not, and the difficulty in terms of doing something about it when it's in the deep tier of the supply chain. But let me just say that it, it's not like this. People are not saying, I'll have 20% slavery and that's okay. <laughs> People simply don't check. People just don't check. What I don't know does not hurt me type of thing. But it exists, and so it's a problem. Look, look what happened in Bangladesh when we had to talk about the social issue. When we had these buildings collapse and thousand people killed, and we found mm. out that uh, brand name companies are dealing with the Bangladeshi. And let me add another issue: if you decide that if you are with Walmart and H&M and several other companies would just leave Bangladesh and not do any of the sewing and all the garment uh, knitting in Bangladesh, you will throw hundreds of thousands, if not million people, out of work when there's no other work. As bad as the conditions are, as bad as the pay is, there is nothing else. So you may be throwing women to prostitution. That's why it's so difficult. They work in atrocious conditions, and the alternative may be worse. Nuance can be annoying, can it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, uh, we're just about out of time, but just one final question. Sure. And I'm wondering in terms of lessons learned from the companies you talk to in this book and in the course of teaching generally, how do you sustain sustainability? Do companies find that a challenge? It's one thing to take on these programs. It's another to keep them going under multiple CEOs and multiple management and changing times. Is that a challenge for companies to keep it up? It is definitely a challenge, and usually it changes with the CEO. eBay started caring about sustainability only when Meg Whitman left because she specifically didn't care about it. So uh, once the CEO changed, they started working on it and started realizing that actually because they sell used products, they're actually paragons of sustainability because they let product being used rather than being thrown out and somebody buy a new product. So in many cases, it's also true, companies that had the sustainable operation, a CEO change, the market change, they're under pressure, profit pressure, and they start using less expensive suppliers without testing too much other sustainability. And even what's the social record of these companies? So sustaining sustainability is difficult, but in many cases, the question is changing the culture. Once the culture changes, it kind of starts working by itself. So companies like Unilever, for example, who work at it, have a lot of achievement in this area. Paul Polman, the current CEO, is the one who kind of brought this focus on, but I don't think it will change when Paul Polman leaves because the board is with him and the people under him are all committed. It will continue because he made such a cultural change, and it requires a cultural change. If there is a cultural change, it will continue. If there's just a doing a let's put two targets for the next five years and all this, the CEO changes, it's gone. It's not going to happen. Let me just say that there is some policing from the outside because once companies declare targets, a lot of NGOs will hold them to it. So there is some policing mechanism, not very strong, but some. The book is Balancing Green, When to Embrace Sustainability in a Business and When Not to. Professor Yossi Sheffi, thank you so much for being with us to talk about it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for being with us today. And thank you very much for having me. That was my conversation with MIT professor Yossi Sheffi, talking about his new book on achieving environmental sustainability in supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where you post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.